0: I'm Shreen Batek, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. And have you been living in comfy clothes recently? I certainly have. And if you're anything like me, you've seen some stunning, really beautifully designed ads from Lunia Cup also cropping up on your Instagram feed, making you wish you could trade in some old sweatshirts for one of their pieces. Joining me today, CEO Ashley Merrill. Hi, Ashley. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you. Okay, big. Pi- let's start big picture, and then we'll get small. What's it been like being the CEO of a company that makes really, really comfortable and beautiful clothing right now?
1: Well, um, I think, you know, there's uh, two different aspects to it. One is that I'm in the retail business, uh, which means that I, you know, and particularly in an omni-channel retail business. So I would say there's aspects of, uh, you know, what we make would feel incredibly relevant, of course, because, you know, we're talking about Clothes that are worn at home. But we are part of a greater retail environment, which has been hit really hard. All of our brick and mortar stores are closed. And um, that was certainly not part of our plan this year. Uh, And we had pretty aggressive targets this year. So I would say it's one of those things where I feel so blessed and lucky that uh, we're not dealing with a situation where our clothes just completely don't make sense in this environment and we are still able to bring in revenue and so grateful that you know my um, fulfillment center hasn't been closed down and so we're able to continue to you know sell and, and fulfill and all that but I, I you know i think i would be remiss in saying that we haven't been affected or uh because at, at the at the end of the day i mean it, we counted on having a lot of different retail channels, wholesales completely down, brick and mortars completely down. And so uh, we're relying on one arm of our transactions.
0: Absolutely. There's there's so much you've said in there. And I, think, and I think you're so right. I think one of the things that we've had nearly everyone who's come on this podcast, but not even just that, just anyone I talk to. I mean, there isn't a single company that's not somewhat affected. And I think for some, you know, we've had, it's funny that you, that you say that because we, you know, we, we've had people on the podcast who've sort of used this word kind of fortunate to describe their situation that like you, they make products that, from a consumer demand perspective, haven't gone down, but they feel like in a lot of different ways, all their various arms and legs that they were kind of moving at the same time. Yes. They're, I don't know why I've gone after this appendage metaphor today, but um, these appendages that were moving at the same time, and suddenly they feel like, wait, my legs just got cut off and I just have one thing now. Um, let's go back sort of to the beginning because, you know, you're running this company and I'm curious about sort of what last maybe four or five weeks really have meant, because it was a lot, it was really difficult, I think, for a lot of people in any industry to understand, A, how this would affect them at the outset. And sort of, I don't think anyone could have predicted kind of what was going to happen over the last five weeks. And I'm curious about, you know, how for you sort of, you said, okay, this is something that's happening, something that's coming, and how you started dealing through that. When was the first kind of indication that you had just that Okay, wait a minute. This this is going to be a crisis, and this is a crisis that affects us. Yeah. Well, interestingly,
1: because I have a supply chain that spans, you know, way beyond the U.S. borders, we were, of course, feeling the shutdowns in Wuhan and China that were happening in February and and kind of late January, um, long before that came here. I wish I could say that oh, I saw those signs and immediately could have anticipated what that what was going to look like for the U.S. I didn't at all. I really. Picture that more of a China centric situation because right. in the past we've had other outbreaks there that really didn't materialize here in the same way, mm-hmm. and um, we were just at that point very much focused on stabilizing our supply chain. Do we need right. redundancy in uh, different areas? And and we were lucky China got back online relatively quickly, and we do have different source or uh, sourcing all over the world. And so we just really had to pivot, come up with a plan to lean into the products we knew we could get. Um, And that was really how we were viewing that in kind of an isolated way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then, you know, mid-March, when it started to become apparent this was going to be something that was uh, going to affect the U.S. in a bigger way, I think it was a day-by-day change of mindset, really, for me. I mean, I would go from one day being like, this situation feels very overblown, to the next I'm going, oh, wow, okay, you know, hearing about Italy and sort of understanding <laughs> what it was looking like, and then suddenly being like, okay, wow, we need to take this seriously, we need to move everyone from home, we need to close our retail stores. So it was the kind of thing that, um, you know, a, a mental evolution for me, but it also happened really fast. It was like you'd go from Tuesday feeling one way to Thursday having a completely different mindset about it. So, uh, absolutely. And I think as a leader too, one of the challenging things is what you want to do is be able to, you know, my, my fundamental job is to be able to lead people. Right. So it's to be able to say, Hey, we're here, we're going here, you know? And so for us, it sent, uh, particularly my leadership team and I into full on, Replanning mode. You know, we mm-hmm. had to look at everything we had said we were going to do for this year and look at what was still feasible, what still made sense. We had to look at all of our fixed costs, knowing that mm-hmm. we were going to have top line revenue issues because of our um, changes in, uh, you know, where we could distribute.
0: And um, basically, we had to retool the whole business inside of a week. And let's talk a little bit more about that retooling, because it's so interesting what you just said. And it's like the retooling just doesn't end, does it? It's It feels like you're retooling constantly. And I know, again, you know, certainly, uh, you know, we as a business have pivoted and shifted and doing more things virtually and certainly changing up, you know, different ways that we make money. By the way, if you don't subscribe to Modern Retail and you're listening to this, you really should, because that's an important way we make money. Um, but it feels like that retooling happens constantly. And I... And that lack of visibility to me is probably sort of the most interesting and yet challenging thing that I assume you're dealing with, which is, I assume that in January, you had a pretty good sense of what April would be. And um, now you don't know what like, much less kind of May 1st, right?
1: Right. And and in, in March, in particular, I'd say things have stabilized a little bit, you can see it in the broader right. markets. Um, but March was, with- was insane because, you know, it was a day to day and you'd wake up and and you could see that the markets were pivoting with consumer sentiment, which was being impacted by, you know, whoever was speaking um, on the podium in that moment. And um, and so that was just wild because I'm looking at our revenue and the first two days when these uh, lockdowns started to happen, um, we were down like
0: 70 percent in terms of revenue. And And mostly driven by physical stores basically being shut down, right?
1: Uh, No, mostly
0: driven by consumer sentiment and
1: freak out. And and I say that because now our revenue is much better than it was. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and and our stores have still, of course, not opened up. So my feeling is that there was just a lot of emotion in the unknown. And so when we were looking at revenue going up and down like that, we had to try to make a plan in the absence of Knowledge on where this was going to go at that time, there was no talk of a stimulus. I kept waiting. I'm like, the government has got to step in here. Are they going to let all these businesses crash? Like, what's the plan? You know, and um, and we just kept seeing the spike in, in layoffs, and and um, so at that point, we had to make decisions without a stimulus, without having stabilized revenue, because we knew that ultimately our fixed costs were built for a revenue number that we were not going to be able to live on
0: absolutely what when you sort of that's a really interesting point and that's actually one that i haven't heard a lot of people mention that you're basically seeing you know you saw this intense drop and now you're sort of seeing things get better but obviously stores are still closed so it must be that people just weren't in the mood to buy things at a point and maybe people are getting a little bit more stable what are you hearing from your customers like what yeah. what do they say
1: you know the the relevance of our products has become more apparent uh, the more people have realized this is going to be a prolonged period you know I think if if you're anticipating being home for a week or two you're not suddenly going oh I need an outfit for that you know okay. but when you start to realize oh wow we're talking months of being at home, your mindset about it changes and I think actually mm-hmm. that's one of the coolest things about humanity is just how incredibly adaptable we are um, I think that the stabilization of the markets uh, that really comes down to uh, people feeling, like they've got a new
0: normal. Yeah, and this is and this is exactly it. Um, that's great. Let's. That's actually a great segue into sort of what I wanted to talk about next. I think there was this sense of, um, and we've been using this sort of around the company for a while, and we didn't actually coin it. Uh, Wolfgang Blau at Conde Nast actually talked about sort of BC and AC a lot before Corona and after Corona, and I think that the point he was making, and it's a point that really I'm I'm hearing a lot of people like there was this there were two camps, right? There's like one camp that was like. This just, let's flip a switch. We do the reopening as if it's literally like opening a door and then we all go back to normal and this people use this word like V-shaped recovery a lot. Like t- today we're here and tomorrow, Ashley, you and I are going to be meeting at a coffee shop and that's just what it's going to be. And I think now there's this understanding that that's not really how it's going to work, right? There's, there's going to be an easing in and there's going to be some things that may never go back to, let's not even use the word normal, to what they were, BC. Yeah. Um, that's especially interesting to me in retail. I mean, you saw retail numbers this week, really, really scary sort of drops of 8% in every retailer, et cetera, et cetera. What, um, what during this whole time are you feeling like these are the behaviors among my consumers that maybe won't go back to the way things were. And also these are the things that we as a business, this has forced us to do that maybe was a good thing. And maybe this accelerated certain improvements and launches and innovations that we won't go back on will actually, this will actually just remain? I think one of
1: the the important things to do is think about how you have changed in this time. Because sometimes you're a good indication of what's happening in the broader sense. Sometimes not, and that can be misleading. But one of the things, I was driving on the road yesterday and there was actually a decent amount of cars around me and I thought, this could be any other Wednesday. You know, that this doesn't have to be a day. Like mentally, this doesn't necessarily look like a day that's all that different than, than pre-COVID Wednesdays. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought, if I was just driving to work right now, in what ways am I truly shaped by what has happened? Um, and for me, the things that came up is I am now very comfortable with talking to people um, through technology. You know, I've been gathering with my friends the whole time. I've been working out with friends over technology. You and I are now doing an interview over technology in in a way that just we wouldn't have done before. I just, I felt there was barriers to entry. And now even I've got my parents on Zoom and, you know, we're doing things that I think uh, it forced us to gain new confidence. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly true with Lunia and the way we do business. And I think one of the things I've always grappled with is... um, that i personally felt that i was m- moving more into the home but that it wasn't totally set up to support business and to support all the things i'd like to do at home and i felt that because you know over time with postmates with grocery delivery with incredible tv that streams to your at home tv it was sort of like really a lot of the reasons i had for leaving my home before have gone away you know i can do all of those things at home and um, in a lot of ways this has, to me, just accelerated that, mm-hmm. you know, I think we has always very much been all about the like, you know, bail on that night. You don't really want to go out
0: for anyway. aka which, Every Friday before March. What? After,
1: <laughs> like it's really given, you know, for me, it's always been like, look at that. And is that really what you want to do? Are you, doing <laughs> what you think you should do it. And now it's like, I can have the best of both worlds. I'm in my pajamas interviewing with you. I want to talk to you. I just don't want to leave my house. So for me, it's like now I can hang out with my friends on Friday from the comfort of my own home. I don't know that that's going to change.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It's like in a lot of ways, this is better. I'm not saying that I never want to see people in real life again, but I just, I think I can actually see people more now, less hassle. I think, um,
0: yeah. And I think you're right in that it's not, it's an acceleration of a trend that was sort of already happening. You know, exactly. I, You know, we were, I was talking to um, Nick Ling, who runs a cookware brand. Uh, well, he runs Pattern, which makes great cookware, right? And they, and he was like, we already knew people were cooking at home. So now people are just cooking more at home. Yeah. And that's great. I'm curious about what that, that says to you about like your business too. Cause I mean, I've heard everything from, okay, we always knew we wanted to do, you know, virtual styling and this forced us into doing it. We yeah. always knew that buy online, pick up in store was important to us. This forced us to build better e-commerce operations or just improve our UX and our customer kind of journey. Or this helped us improve, because we had to, frankly, because we had to make payroll. Yep. And what have you sort of done just because you mentioned kind of having to make some certain some decisions? Um, what do those decisions look like? And which ones are the ones that, again, you hope were actually maybe even a fortunate sort of thing that came out of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, because it's forced us to change how we do business for a lot of reasons. Some of them because uh, the customer's needs changed or, you know, I had to literally close retail doors and some of them because uh, I had to get more efficient because I needed to lower my costs. Right. Uh, and so I would say there's been many, uh, we have were um, optimizing our distribution to make sure we're set up for long term, bigger scale. Uh, we've, focused and doubled down on our customer happiness department. So really making sure that we can manage those tickets in house. And I'd say cost cutting was a big part of that, but, what it allowed us to do by bringing it in-house was it allowed us to really look at what are the tickets that are unnecessary that we could avoid the simple UX changes to our website Mm. so we can cut down the overall ticket flow. And so a lot of that, because we had outsourced a lot of that, we were just missing on efficiency opportunities. And so, you know, I think when you're a business that has, gone through many, many years of incredibly rapid growth, these are the things you just don't have time for. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we were faced with a different situation where the pressure for once wasn't on the growth, the pressure was on the costs and the efficiencies. And so we actually are getting our operations in order in a way that they weren't in order before. Mm -hmm. So what I'm really optimistic about is now that I think revenue is feeling more stable, um, when we come out of this, because we've got our house in order a lot more, I'd like to think we'll actually be able to to rocket ship out of this when the recu- when the economy starts to to rebound. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's okay. that efficiency. Yeah, and I think what you talk about on the customer side is absolutely true. You know, digital styling is something we're working on, of course. I mean, come on, this is a, a product you're going to buy to wear at home. It does feel like we should have an incredible at home service for you, and I think that's really top of mind for us we were thinking about all the ways we can make it easy for her mm-hmm. and him because we also have logo in in the new world which is like what are the reasons you go to the store why don't you want to go to the store how can we make it easy for you to do whatever is is the easiest for you you know how do we make our, our shopping experience fluid and so it's spurring wonderful conversations and you know we're 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 checking off the list trying to work out ways to to make our experience better and better.
0: We're going to take a quick break for an ad and we'll be right back. Do you think that um, stores are really interesting to me too? And obviously you, you had them, you have them, you still have them. Um, they're sadly so empty. Um, yes, but I have them. <laughs> close, <but> yes, <laughs> you have them. Um, but, but that that's actually, I mean, that, that was actually going to be my question because it's, I feel like so many of the things we all kind of expected would be our growth drivers, no matter what business you were in. I mean, publishers who expected events to be their growth driver this year that just like saw overnight say, actually, we don't have that anymore. Um, yeah. You had – and I think I'm especially interested in, in companies that, you know, for many, physical stores were sort of the growth centers. They were the places that once you got to that point – and you saw this with a lot of startups that are younger than you, right? So startups that started in the last couple years yeah. really using – last year was the big, like, store year for a lot of people, Um And the stores were profitable, usually, usually more profitable um, for a lot of these companies. Um, They were also great ways to talk to customers or great customer touch points. And for a lot of, you know, people even watching this space, like VCs, it was like, this is how to tell that really a startup is going to make the big leagues, right? Like they have a store strategy. They have a physical strategy. It's not just online. And now I'm wondering, like, does that even... Does that stay true? Of course, stores are gonna come back. Retail's not dead, like everyone knows that. But does that change how you're thinking about the role of physical stores in your business?
1: For me, the lesson that I learned was not that physical life is no longer relevant. The lesson that I've learned is diversification really matters. You know, in this case, yes, all of our stores got shut down and now I can't make any revenue out of the stores. But what if it is Facebook that changed their algorithm, right? And suddenly overnight, I don't have Facebook as a way to remember
0: when that happened.
1: Yeah, but that happens. And that's, that's a reality. So one thing I think that's important is that you don't learn a lesson too well. You know, you don't want to go, Oh, my takeaway of this is I'm completely out of physical retail. To me, that's, that's shouldn't be the lesson. You know, this lesson should be that not, if you want to go back to the, um, the arms and legs metaphor. Oh, I
0: love my appendage metaphor. It's caught on with you.
1: We were using that metaphor actually yesterday on a call. And I was saying, you know, I'm just lucky they cut off my brick and mortar arm. Like if they'd cut off my e-com arm, which is the bigger area of my business, I actually would be in really big trouble. And I don't think that I should have any arm that they should cut off that should kill the whole business. You know, I think that uh, to me, a good operating strategy is one that's flexible. And I think that's the same thing about costs. So one very important takeaway for me, though, was Um, I could tell I was already starting to get sucked into the um, brick and mortar. Oh, we have to pay a lot for this location because it's in the right place. And early on when I was building out brick and mortar, I never got sucked into that and I didn't have any money. So I was always going, Where can I get like the best deal and keep my costs really low? I'm so glad I had a few leases that were hanging in the balance that were just about to be closed, which would have been really expensive leases. I'm literally like, oh, thank goodness I didn't sign those. Um, And I will sign those probably when I come back out of this in the same way I did. I think that one of the things that the um, landlords are going to have to have as a takeaway, unfortunately, is I don't think anyone will ever be able to pay what they were paying before, and it's unfortunate because what they were paying before was already a lot less than they had been paying
0: ten years. Before. Right. I mean, you already had empty shop friends at least here, you know, on Madison Avenue for years at this point now. Yes,
1: and I think that's um, that there were certain areas that were still commanding enough rent. And I just the way I look at it now is I will never sign those leases. You know, I'm I'm driving 50 to 70 percent of my brick and mortar traffic into stores from the online. There's no reason I should be paying top dollar for a physical retail location. I should assume that, hey, if another pandemic happens and we get shut indoors. This is a fixed cost that I'm going to have to be able to deal with. And the question I should be asking myself is, will I be able to take on those fixed costs, even if it does mean I have to lean out my operation temporarily, but can, will I be able to handle those fixed costs minus their revenue? And yeah. that's going to have to be some pretty low rents that I'm paying.
0: I think that's that's so true. And you know, revenue diversification, I think, is the big takeaway, again, for I think almost any business right now no business should be entirely reliant on just one way of making money and that's just going to be a problem if you are you mentioned um you also mentioned i mean there's some choices and i think decisions that a lot of people are going to have to make coming out of this right like one of them is going to be okay maybe i'll change the way i think of brick and mortar um but i think the other one that i'm really interested in does this also get a lot of brands to do things they wouldn't have normally done. Like one question I've been asking a lot of people is, okay, you, you know, two years ago, not you, just the Royal, you, (laughs) um, said to me, oh, I will never go on Amazon. Have you go on Amazon now? Like suddenly, suddenly do a lot of marketplace approaches that you, you know, supposedly shunned because they weren't good enough or they weren't right enough, or they didn't work for your brand strategy at the time. Do more avenues now get opened up? Because I think if we're going to talk about lack of visibility, like I have no idea what the hell's is going to happen. It also extends the other way. Like maybe a lot of the decisions I made last year aren't relevant anymore. Yeah. Are there th- places you would sell or you would change that? You may have a year ago said no way. And now you're like, well, I don't know. Maybe
1: I don't see huge value in diversifying online sources. To be honest, I'm cutting down my wholesale online. So for me, I just really feel like there's not a huge benefit in online diversification. My sense is that, um, you know, you do get incremental, little bit of incremental benefit, but it also starts to cannibalize your direct relationship. Amazon has a history of being very um, closed door in terms of what they tell you about your customer, which makes it really hard for me to innovate on my product, to know what mm-hmm, people think, mm-hmm. to create long-term relationships with my customer. At this point, the math is still for me just saying hey no to Amazon and, and building my own thing. I think the the um danger of Amazon of saying no to Amazon is then they have a history of just they'll rip you off and just try to do the same thing right. on Amazon. And I think that's where at the end of the day I can't I have to be relentless about the quality and the value of my product sure. so that it so that whatever they make, I have to make sure that mine's better than theirs. Yeah. Um and I'm not saying I would never go onto Amazon, but I currently don't see a lot of value in online diversification because by being online, I'm already accessible all over the world, you know? So it's not like they're getting me a lot. It's like, okay, they're getting me their Amazon customer, but we did, they had like an Amazon day where they, you know, they drive. Yeah, we got like no bump from that. We did participate mm-hmm. in that. So they, you know, I, I. at one hand, it's only valuable to add diversification. Mm-hmm channels, if they're pretty committed to helping you grow, if they're just taking your product and then putting it there so that then I'm just moving my customers from me to them. And that's really not creating any value for me. So I think where the diversification was helpful was actually in brick and mortar was that Mm. uh, for me, if you live in a place that's maybe not as metropolitan, like I live in Los Angeles, if you live in New York, like you probably you have kind of everything at your fingertips. But if you live in somewhere slightly outside the city, you actually rely on boutiques often, like multi-brand mm-hmm. boutiques. Yes. Because that's where you're conveniently going to grab something that you're going to wear out. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, those were actually the partners I really wanted to lean into. Unfortunately, those brands are getting... They're, you know, they're, or those boutiques are really getting yeah. hurt right now. But those are the partners that for me really represented a lot of value because they were not competing with me and they were, I was bringing value to them and their relationship to their customer. And they were bringing brand awareness uh, for me in areas that I wasn't going to probably be able to be creating on my own.
0: I, I, I love that. And I think, I think what we are getting at now is like it's revenue diversification. I think for a lot of people, revenue displacement somehow just acts as like, well, I diversified my revenue. Look, I moved it from, I don't know, uh, your website to yeah. say it's Amazon or say it's something else. Um, and all you've really done is kind of moved it, and then you have the ancillary benefits, but that's not diversifying it. Exactly. Exactly. It's completely different.
1: Yeah. You got to think about it in terms of different audience segments and how are you getting front of in front of those different segments? You know, for me, I know there's one segment I'm really good at getting in front of because I can hit them on Instagram, Facebook, Google, right?
0: I think I'm your segment. I got it. Yeah. I get a lot of your ads.
1: (laughs) Yeah. like I'm great for your segment. Right. But then it's like, there's other groups that I just know I'm not going to be able to do it. And so I actually have to think instead of worrying about it from how the consumer, from the like channel specifically, I think of it from a customer perspective, like who is that customer and how do I get that customer And it could look a lot of different ways, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned kind of getting people that would have shopped on store, in store, getting them online. Um, I'm curious about how you are getting the segments that normally would have been, you know, your, let's call them your physical store segments, whether it was through sort of boutique partnerships or through just coming to your stores, um, and getting them to be online. Because that's that's a consumer behavior that in some ways like is gonna happen. But also you and brands like yours are gonna have to force it because you need you want them. You don't want them to stop shopping.
1: Yeah, one really interesting thing about that is I mean, I just read, I think it was Morgan Stanley, no, it was McKinsey just just produced a report about what's the new world going to be post-COVID. And one of the things they talked about was that people are being forced to buy online. It's the same way that I'm being forced to get comfortable with Zoom, right? And now I'm comfortable. I can use any platform, Zoom's just one of them, right? And suddenly like all those barriers are broken down for me. I think the big question is will those consumers who had aversion to shopping online uh, move back to physical now that they've gained this new competency? My theory is no, right? Like is that once you get comfortable with buying online, Eh, there's sort of like diminishing returns to going back in store. I think it's where I look at it as I'd like to break down the value of in-store. It could be events. It could be instant gratification, right? Like, wow, I can go there. I need something for tonight. I need a gift. I need an outfit. Great. Um, And then you're like, it's touch and feel and brand experience. And I'd like to go, how do we strip that down? And what are the other ways we can give all of those things to our customer? And so that's actually what we're working on at Lunia is going, it's not to say we don't want to continue to offer brick and mortar. I think it's valuable, but I will look at it differently. And I also think I'm going to look for other opportunities to be able to give some of those same uh, touch points with the customer that might not be just Brick and mortar
0: retail. Amazing. I feel like it's optimistic, but it's smart and also has lots of arms and legs. <laughs> as long as not all of them drop off, we're going to be okay, right? Drop off. Pretty much. Ashley, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Great conversation.
0: Great conversation. And thank you for listening. Our producers, Pierre BNMA. If you like the show, please head to your iTunes store, or search for our show, The Modern Retail Podcast, and leave us a review and a rating. Thanks again for listening.